following audio is from a sermon series called Identity Formation. As we study through the book of Ephesians, our aim is to get an understanding about what is most true about us when our identity is found in Jesus Christ. As we understand our gospel identity, we learn that our being informs our doing. Ephesians is all about identity formation. For more information on Sacred City Church, visit scmoline.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Ephesians 6, 21 to 24. So that you also may know how I am and what I am doing. Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers in love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. This is the word of the Lord. Today, today marks the end of an era for Sacred City Church. We have been in the book of Ephesians for 35 weeks. Since April, we've been going verse by verse, chapter by chapter, through Paul's letter to the book of Ephesus, which I am convinced is pound for pound, one of the most theologically robust life, it just has this way to cut into life that forms us and shapes us, that makes us a certain kind of people. I've loved it so much. And as we've gone through this book of Ephesians, we've been looking at this letter that Paul wrote 2,000 years ago um, to a small church plant, much like us, um, through the lens of identity formation. That's been our tagline, Ephesians, identity formation. And the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians really is emphasizing this one main theme. It's saying this is who you are when you are in Christ. That when you put your trust and your faith in Jesus, when you see what he has done for you in the gospel, you are transformed in a radical and profound way to the core not just this auxiliary piece, this like little tweaks about your personality thing, but at the core of your being, you are changed in a tremendous way, in a way that nothing else can change you. Paul says in Ephesians 1 through 3, this is what's most true about you when you are in Christ. And these banners here testify to some of those things. Paul says, you are loved. You've been adopted. You've been blessed by the Father who gives all good gifts. You've been reconciled to God. Though you were in sin, you've been brought near. You were far off, now you're brought near. You've been gifted with every spiritual blessing. You've been forgiven. And you've gone from death into life because of the grace of Jesus. And Paul tells us, he's like, you don't work your way into this. You don't pull yourself up by the bootstraps. You don't kind of sort your life out in a way and and sort of mind map or you got like a vision board that you kind of, okay, this is what I'm going to finally do with my life. You don't do that. You didn't earn it. You didn't achieve it. Paul says it's by grace through faith in Jesus that we receive this gospel identity, which is great news because this means that it's, it's available to anybody who will come. It's available to anybody who will receive this gift that God puts in front of his people. Now, the second half of the letter of Ephesians uh, unpacks what it looks like to live out of this gospel identity. So Paul says, here's who you are. This is what's most true about you. And now this is how you live out of that identity. He works out the implications of our gospel identity. He says, this is how you conduct yourself on a personal level. You walk humbly. You, you live a life of righteousness, of purity, of love, of truth, of forgiveness, of tenderheartedness. And then Paul puts the individual in the context of the local church. He says, this is how you work out this identity within the context of a, a diverse yet radically unified group of believers who have been brought together as one through the blood of Christ. And he gives this incredible vision of what it looks like to live in this ecosystem, this relational ecosystem of grace. He moves it into the family arena. He says, husbands, love your wives as Christ has loved the church. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as the church submits themselves to Christ. Children, honor, obey your parents. Parents, 
lead in a way that brings them up in the Lord, that elevates bosses or, or, or masters. Lead knowing that you are under the lordship of Christ. Use your authority in a way that honors God. Servants, employees, honor your employees, and in doing so, you will honor Jesus. Employer, sorry. There's this dynamic of godly leadership and of humble submission that occurs as this, this grace kind of permeates the hearts of the people. So basically, that's what we've been doing for the last eight months. What's your identity and how then do you live? Now, as we come to a close of the book of Ephesians, um, I'm looking forward to 2022 when we will be in uh, the books of Ezra and Nehemiah for the bulk of the year. Um, we're, I'm, I'm really looking forward to this. Um, but honestly, we could run this whole thing back. Like next week, we could go right back to Ephesians 1, 1 and start this whole thing over and we'll probably do it indefinitely. I think, I think there's enough girth here in the book of Ephesians to sustain this church until the new heavens and new earth where Jesus comes back riding on the clouds. And the reason why this is the case is because Christians are a forgetful bunch, Right? And I'm not just talking about forgetting to get something at the grocery store or you forget to grab a present while you're out and about running errands. I'm talking about we're forgetting some really important things here. Right? We're like Dory from, from Finding Nemo, right? We're just a little bit scatterbrained at times. Like the, the circumstances of life sort of pop up and we forget one moment like what's most true about us or, or, the, or there's this, this movie, I don't know, maybe you've seen it called Memento. Like this guy literally has, I, he can't remember who he is. He can't remember where he come from. And so he's on this investigative journey of figuring out, well, somebody killed his wife, trying to figure out who killed his wife, who he is, well, how he got to where he's at. And so what he does is he tattoos himself to remember the story. Every day he wakes up and is like, okay, this is how I am reorienting myself to the world. This guy just forgets who he is. Christians, we do this often. Sometimes for extended seasons, sometimes it's a, a moment-by-moment, day-by-day thing where just for a moment there's this lapse of memory where we forget what is most true about us. And instead of operating from a place of love, like of, of being already loved, we operate from the place of we have to achieve love. We have to make ourselves lovable in order to gain love. We, we operate instead of a place of already having everything that we need, every spiritual blessing right there at our fingertips of striving and trying to earn it and gain it for ourselves. We have these lapses in our memory. Paul Tripp calls this identity amnesia, right? This forgetfulness of, of who we are. And he says this, identity amnesia always, always leads to identity replacement. So you can't just have a, a vacuum of identity. You, it's not just that you forget who you are and it's just like sort of a big question mark. For, there's some, always something that's going to replace that. Or you forget your identity in Christ, something else will come behind and try to backfill the void. He says, when you forget your identity in Christ, you search for identity in people, places, and things. You don't look to Christ. You don't look to the gospel you look to people and places and things. And, and the things that we commonly look to, um, men, I think we, we do this often, um, but it's not certainly not limited men, but we, we look to our jobs. It's one of those places where we can go, we can punch the clock, we can succeed in the eyes of the world. And for that moment, get that draw of satisfaction, that draw of vindication and validation that says, this is who I am. I've made myself a somebody. Women, moms specifically, easy to look to our kids. Right? My, well, I'm a mom. That's who I am first and foremost is I'm a mom. Right? And, and let me tell you what, that is a, that is a teeter-totter you do not want to ride on. Up and down, up and down, back and forth. You put your, your identity, wrap it up in your spouse of how good of a spouse you are or how your spouse thinks of you. You put your identity in money and success, how many likes you get on social media, how, how well people respond to you, and it seems like your influence is accumulating. You, you, you go to the gym, like maybe physically your body, like the way that you, you diet and exercise, you go to the gym, like this lifestyle of health. You put your identity in, like it could be anything. And these are good things. Right? It's good to be a mom. 
It's good to work hard. It's good to take care of your body. These are good things, but they get elevated to a place where they cannot and will not sustain you through the everyday stuff of life. And the reason why is because they are always less fulfilling and less stable than the gospel identity that Jesus gives you by grace. The identity that you look to in your job, your kids, your spouse, your money, success, uh, your influence, it's always going to rise and fall based on either one of two things, really. It's going to rise and fall either based on your performance of how well you succeed, how well you keep going, how, how well you can keep pushing the bar ahead, you know, or it's going to depend upon the opinions of other people. Both of these things are fickle. Both of these things can be unreliable. Now, the, the danger of, of letting our identities get backfilled by these good but not, you know, substantial things is that if we sustain this, if we keep drawing our identity from these things for a sustained amount of time, what's going to happen is we will start to backslide. This is a term uh, that, that the Christians use, right? It's this identity, this thing, the concept of when Paul talks about we have this new identity, there's this new self that we receive in Christ, which replaces the old self, which Jesus came to free us from. What happens is when we forget our identity in Christ, we backslide, we forget the new self, and we revert back to the old self and the old ways of life, which Paul talks about in chapter 4 of Ephesians. We revert back to a corrupt and darkened mind. We, we, we kind of slide into um, disordered loves, disproportionate loves, our deceitful desires. This former way of life sneaks into the present and will then sabotage our future. And when it does that, when that goes unchecked, we will miss out on the joy and the freedom that Jesus gives us in the gospel. Now, as we come to the closing statements of the book of Ephesians today, um, which these four verses are typically overlooked, I think that tends to be the case in most epistles as, as you kind of, you know, you get the meat and potatoes, you know, the beginning, the middle, and you get to the end, it kind of winds down a little bit. You know, you kind of throw away the, the endings a little bit. But, but I don't think we can afford to do this because it's in these four verses that I can see, and I hope that you will see with me, that Paul is cluing us into the antidote to identity amnesia. Paul is telling us how we can preserve this gospel identity, how we can keep uh, from, from backsliding into no man's land and replacing that, and, you know, the, the vacuum of identity with other things that just cannot sustain us. And I've got two questions that I want to ask this morning. One, number one is, what is the antidote? What is Paul saying here? Here's what's going to keep you in this identity. And the second question is, where is the antidote dispensed? So if you would join me in opening up your Bibles, um, there will be the verses here on the screen as well. we'll we're going to look at um, Ephesians chapter 6, verses 21 through 24. The Apostle Paul says, so that you also may know how I am and what I am doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers and sisters. And love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. So let's look at this first question. What is the antidote to identity amnesia? I think we see the antidote here in verses 23 and 24, which is the benediction of the letter. It's the sign-off. Now, what is, what is a benediction? What is that Exactly. That's not a word that's in our vocabulary every day. A benediction is a wished, excuse me, a wish turned prayer to blessing. So, so it's this, man, this would be nice if this would happen. And then I'm actually going to go to God and I'm going to ask for it. And then based upon the character and the benevolence of God, which I see throughout the scriptures, I'm going to even proclaim this over you, where I'm going to presume 
in the best way on God's grace and kindness and love towards his people. So we see this wish turned prayer to blessing um, that, that Paul realizes or, or conveys in light of God's benevolence. And one of the, the primary benedictions, one that's been circulating through the church throughout um, the, the, um, the origin of the church, is, is found in uh, number six. In fact, not, not just the church of the New Testament, but even going back to God's people from the very beginning. Number six, 23 through 24, it says, The Lord bless and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. And so here, even in this, this benediction from number six, we can see that there's this wish turned prayer into blessing that's based on God's benevolence and his character. That you be blessed, that he be gracious, that he give you peace. And every week that we come together as a church and we, we go through our liturgy and song and the preaching of the word and the sacrament, we close out our time together with a benediction. It's a commission of, of sorts. It, it, it's, it's this wish turned prayer into blessing that as you go, the Lord Jesus would be with you, that his face would shine upon you, that he'd look upon you with his countenance and give you peace. And this is how Paul sends off or signs off on this letter. He, he gives this beautiful benediction. And, and in this benediction, Paul asks God to give that which only God can give because it originates from God. Check this out. Look at this with me again. Verse 23. Peace to the brothers and love with faith from God, okay, from God, the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace be with you all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. So what is this? What, what is he, what is, what blessing, what benediction is he leaving the church with? He's, it's that of peace, of love, of faith, of grace. Right, you, you go to Hobby Lobby right now, you can walk down the art decor or you know, the wall decor aisle and you'll see those words plastered everywhere, right? Faith, love, hope, joy, you know, you get the whole slew of them. And one of our tendencies um, is to live in the superficial reality of what those things are, right? It's just like a fancy word or it's a, it's a nice sentiment thing that, that we kind of plaster up on our walls and it's, a, you know, I don't know, it's a nice thing. But this, what Paul is asking that God would give the church this peace, this love, this faith, this grace is more than just a word. It's more than just art decor, ideas. See, in these words, what's behind them is a real and eternal substance. Though these things are immaterial, you, you can't pick up love, you can't pick up faith, you can't pick up grace, right? you can't hold them in your hands. And while they're immaterial, these things are more real than the pews that you're sitting on right now. Do you understand what Paul is asking for here when he prays for peace and love and faith and grace? Now, this is huge. This is huge. Paul is asking for the very essence of God to be given to the church. To, to the Apostle Paul, there is nothing bigger or better or more glorious to ask for in prayer than to ask for these things because he is asking for God himself to be with the church. Paul prays that they would have peace. Peace isn't a thing, it's a person. He tells us this in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14. He, he says, for he, Jesus himself is our peace. He's praying for the presence of Jesus to be among the church, the prince of peace who comes and breaks down this dividing wall of hostility that separates Jews from Gentiles, right? That's, that separates, that would put a barrier between different people in the church. And, and with us in our context, what is that dividing wall of hostility? Maybe it's political affiliations, maybe it's social economic, maybe it's cultural and racial dynamics that have separated the church. And Paul says, listen, Jesus is the Prince of Peace who comes and lays to ruins the dividing wall of hostility. He himself is our peace. And what he says is that Jesus comes 
And what he does is he reconciles the church to God. While we were enemies of God, while we were hostile to God, while we wanted nothing to do with God, Jesus comes and brings us back in relationship to God. He reconciles sinners to the most holy God you could possibly fathom. And not only does he reconcile us to God, he reconciles us to one another. And he says that that, that this reconciliation takes place so that there's not two men or, or two groups of Christians, but there would be one new man, a people so thoroughly integrated by the gospel Though there are definitely marks of diversity and there are differences between the different groups of people, there is this radical and profound unity that takes place in the church. It's because Jesus has toppled the wall of hostility. He prays, God, would you give them peace? Would you give them your presence? Then he goes on and he prays for love. Peace to the brothers and love with faith from God, the Father, and Jesus Christ. Now, love, contrary to the beliefs of our culture, is not a feeling. Love is not a vibe. Love is a person. 1 John 4 says God is love, and love is from God. There are a lot of counterfeits out there. There are a lot of things that are posing as love that are actually not love at all. And God stands in the gap. He says, I am love. And the Old Testament prophesies or points to the reality that God is abounding in steadfast love. It's not that he has a small quantity of it that he disperses conservatively. God has vast amounts of love. right? Paul, in his prayer in Ephesians chapter 3, that he would know the height, the breadth, the depth, the width of God's love for us. You could comprehend with the saints of what this is. See, God has this huge amount of love. And Ephesians 2, 4 tells us that God has set his great love upon us. And the way that we see that is through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. That he loves us so much that he would lay his life down in order that we might live. That we would go from death into life. See, Paul prays, I pray that you would have love. And the way that you know love is present among the brothers, among the church, is when you see this real self-sacrificing, others-exalting kind of love. Love is not self-seeking. Love does not put me out as number one. Love humbles myself, considers others higher than I consider myself, in line with Philippians 2. See, Paul is praying I pray that God himself, the God of love, would be with you. And then he goes on and he prays for love, a specific kind of love, a love with faith. Not this wishy-washy kind of love, not this fickle sort of come-and-go kind of love when it's convenient or, 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 you know, that maybe bows out when things get tricky, but love that is anchored in faith. The author of Hebrews tells us that faith is assurance of things hoped for, the convictions of things unseen. This is not a wishy-washy, fingers-crossed kind of an expression, but a resolute and strong conviction that regardless of what my eyes see, I will stay true to God. Now, this this kind of conviction, right? We we think of, of faith being expressed in that kind of conviction, The reason why Christians can have that kind of faith, why faith gets expressed, which, by the way, is a gift from God. It's not something that we muster up in our own strength. It comes from God. It's it's implanted in us. But the reason why Christians can, can remain faithful is because faith has been solidified in us through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13 says that the Holy Spirit, and as we put our trust in Jesus, the Holy Spirit makes his residence in us. 
that he is the seal and the guarantee of the promise. And so the reason why Christians continue to be faithful and unwavering from the word of God, why we keep uh, our allegiance to Jesus no matter how we get bombarded by the culture is because the spirit is keeping us. The spirit has sealed us. And we know that God, putting the down payment of the Holy Spirit in us, he will come to collect us. And so in that way, Paul is praying that the Holy Spirit would fill your hearts, would strengthen you in your inner being. And finally, Paul asks for grace. Now, there are a lot of ways to define grace. Um, Grace oftentimes is defined of getting what you don't deserve, which there's some truth to that. But the Psalms specifically testify that God himself is grace. Psalm 145 says, God, the Lord, is gracious. That's his character, his divine attributes. He is gracious and merciful. And when Jesus comes in the flesh, John 1.14 tells us that Jesus comes bearing the image of the invisible God. He comes full of grace and of truth. See, grace... One side of the coin of grace is grace, and the other side is that of truth. Jesus comes with grace and truth. He holds them together. Going back to Ephesians 6, in the, in the spiritual armor of God, he, he, it tells us put on the belt, belt of truth. Jesus comes personified as grace, wearing the belt of truth. And we, we have to understand this, um, that grace and truth must be held together. Because grace without truth is negligent. Grace without truth says, there are no rules. Do what you want. God will will figure it out in the end. But Jesus came and he gave the commission to his disciples. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded. He's showing them the way of truth. And so we have to see this, that God's truth, God's law, God's commands are really an extension of his grace. They're, they're not rules that help us gain God's favor, they, that get us in good God's, great, God's good graces. God's law is given to us so that we would better understand his kindness and experience that in the way that we live, acknowledging that Jesus is Lord. He leads us through paths of righteousness and of truth. And of grace. So that means to know real grace, there's going to be a presence of real truth, which will always lead you into the arms of Jesus because he is full of grace and truth. There is no grace, there is no truth outside of the bounds of Jesus. So Paul lays out all these things. I pray you would have peace, which he himself is our peace. I pray that you'd have love, which God is love. I pray that you would experience faith, deep in faith, right, which comes through the conviction of the Spirit, the indwelling, the seal, the guarantee of the Spirit. I pray that you would have grace, which is God. He's not just praying for grace in the sense of God's essence, but, but a grace in the sense of power. See, the This is one of the things that struck me throughout this whole sermon series is Paul, his understanding of grace as power. That God's grace gets implanted in us in such a way where supernatural power just comes out of us. Not not of ourselves, but God implants his power and brings this out of us. So we see this in salvation, God's overcoming power at work within us. And Ephesians 2, 8 says, by grace you've been saved, not by your work. So again, pointing back to God, it comes from God. We see it in salvation, but we also see it in life. This supernatural power that God gives his people to draw from in order to live according to his ways. Paul recognizes this. In Ephesians chapter 3, verse 7, Paul acknowledges that grace is this power that compels all of his ministry. Let 
But this isn't isolated just for Paul because he's, you know, he's, you know, he's like the top dog in the apostle world. He's, he's like the, the, the trailblazer of the church. It's not isolated just for the apostle Paul. See, this, this grace as power is at work at all of the apostles. And it trickles down throughout all of the saints who find themselves in the church. It's this grace as power that compels the life of the church, that compels godly character and godly action and godly relationships and, and godly churches. It's the grace of God. Now, if you're a Christian... You have already received these things in salvation. If you're a Christian, if you've been born again, your heart has been regenerated, you have already experienced these things in the past tense where you have found yourself underneath the waterfall of God's love and grace and peace. The moment you saw Jesus and him crucified, the king of kings who would lay his life down for the feeblest and weakest of people, you have stood beneath the waterfall of God's grace. And in that moment, produced in you was faith and trust in Jesus, this conviction that I will align my whole life to follow him. And upon believing, you are sealed with the Spirit. See, it's God's love and it's grace, his peace through faith that you've been washed, that he's he's raised you. It's past tense. You have been raised with Christ and are currently seated with him in the heavenlies. That you have been made alive. It's all past tense in this regard. And one of the mistakes that Christians tend to make is that after having stood underneath the waterfall of God's grace, we remove ourselves from there. I got wet, so I'm just going to go on with my business and do what I got to do. We have this mindset that one trip under the waterfall is sufficient for us. It's like that that punch your ticket to heaven sort of mindset. Paul says, listen, that cannot sustain the church, at least not the kind of life that God calls the church to live. Not not this vibrant and robust expression of, of, of grace, relational grace, this ecosystem of grace. Paul is praying That the church, not just the church in Ephesus, but us right now today, would be continually washed and continually receive from God what he intends to give his people. That, That love and grace and peace and faith would continually pour out upon us. That we would find ourselves again and again and again placed underneath this waterfall of grace, drenched and saturated with God himself. And when we find ourselves Placed there. This is what solidifies our gospel identity. When we remember, when we receive, because God God doesn't stop giving it. He, He continually pours it out. He continually gives these gifts. But oftentimes we stop receiving them. Paul says you've got to keep receiving these if you want to keep living out of your gospel identity. You have to live a life centered on the person of Christ. Now, there are going to be times in your walk with Jesus where you feel that your gospel identity is really staggering in in not a good way, where you feel discombobulated, where you just feel like it's weak, that... You know, it seems kind of futile. And in that moment, it's easy to assume that the waterfall of God's love, grace, and peace has dried up. Like, oh, that's it. I knew, I knew God would stop at some point. He's just, I've gotten on his last nerve, and he's booted me. And now I'm just out here all, all my own shriveling up. How many psalm? Many psalmists express this sentiment. They, they have this feeling, this sense. Right? A couple places, you could Psalm 88. Gosh, well, God, why have you turned your face from me? Psalm 22, it's, which is actually the psalm that Jesus quotes um, from the cross as he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you turned your face from me? Now, what we need to understand as Christians is that the waterfall of grace never runs dry. That Jesus, that God never turns it off. See, at the cross, Jesus was cut off from God. 
That that constant flow of grace and love and faith and trust and peace that he's experienced his whole life from eternity past and will from eternity future, in the moment on the cross, he was cut off from God. The thing that gave him life, the thing that gave him vibrancy, the thing that invigorated him, he lost it out. And, and you see that on the cross. He's, he's thirsty on the cross. I thirst. That's not just a physical thirst. Jesus isn't just saying, hey, my tongue's dry, which, yeah, it definitely was. His soul was dry because that waterfall was being shut off on him. And there on the cross, as Jesus took upon our sin, he took upon our old, futile identity that that is darkened in our understanding, that has deceitful desires, that has disordered love. Jesus took that all upon himself. And God turned his face from him. I mean, it went dark. It was like midnight at midday. God turned his face away and forsook Jesus who was wearing our sin and guilt and shame. But since Jesus went there and put on our junk and stood in our place, what he does is he exchanges places with us. He took our stuff so that we could have his righteousness. And in his righteousness, we get brought in to the arms of the Father. Right, that's again what Paul is testifying that once you were far off and now you've been brought near by grace. And it's because we stand in the righteousness of God that he will never forsake us, that the, 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 the flow of grace and love and peace will never be shut off because we stand in the righteousness of Christ. We stand in the identity of Christ as a beloved son, as a beloved daughter. Hebrews points again to the promise that God will never leave or forsake us. We know this to be true because at the cross, Jesus was forsaken so that we would never have to be. And the promise of the Great Commission, he says, after he tells us, hey, go make disciples, teach them to obey my commands, he says, behold, I'm with you until the end of the age. So when it feels like the waterfall has dried up, and, and a lot of times it has to do with our circumstances that we're facing. Conflict, difficulty, physical ailments. And you start wondering, man, did, did God turn off the flow? No. He didn't turn it off. He never does turn it off. What's happened is that we have moved out from underneath of it. See, the, the waterfall is going, it's flowing. But we've jumped to the outside. And, and what always happens is that when you move out from underneath the waterfall, when you move out from underneath the constant flow of God's mercy and grace and love and kindness to us, what happens is that you will find yourself in a stagnant cesspool, reverting back to your old ways, like Paul identifies in Ephesians 4.21, bitterness of wrath, of anger, of clamor, of slander, and malice. It's antithetical. Those things are antithetical to the flow that God wants to pour out upon his people. And so Paul's prayer in verses 23 and 24 is a petition, it's a prayer, it's a blessing that we would continually stand underneath the waterfall of God's grace. That we continually as a church be washed, redeemed, and matured by the very things of God himself, the essence of God, his grace, his love, his faith, his peace. And he tells us that this, this is the antidote to identity amnesia. The longer you stand underneath the flow of those things, the waterfall of grace, the more it solidifies your gospel identity. It, it, it assures you of who you are in Christ. And now to the second question as we close up is where exactly is this antidote dispensed? And actually the better question is not where, but rather through whom is this antidote of identity amnesia dispensed? Paul says 
It's through the brotherhood. The place, the context, the people through whom this identity amnesia antidote is dispensed through the people of God. In verse 23, he says, you know, he prays for all these things, these blessings. He prays to the brothers, to the sisters, to the people of God, those who have been adopted into God's family. And every time in Ephesians that we see the word you, which, again, uh, you see it here, so that you would also know how I am and how I'm doing, right? That, that you is, is not a singular you, like we as American individuals tend to look at it and think of, oh, me and God, we're here. He's talking about you as a y'all, right? Every time he talks about you, it's y'all, the church, the people. Not the person, but the people. It's through these people where God administers the antidote to identity amnesia. It's where God manifests himself. Now, this is a thing that Paul talks about in the middle of Ephesians. He's talking about the temple. He's talking about these building blocks that God's piecing all together, um, the different members of the body God's assembling together. In the Old Testament, it was the temple, like a physical structural building where God dwelt, right, where God administered his grace and his mercy. Like, there are big altars. There's, there's big wash bins. There was a, a whole lot of ritual that went around the temple, the, the Holy of Holies, the place where God dwelt. And now the Apostle Paul is telling us that the church, the people, is the temple, which is why the temple got destroyed in 70 or so A.D., because the people of God are the temple. We're the dwelling place of God. That's Ephesians 2.22. And it's in this place, in this people, Paul says in chapter 3, verse 10, where the manifold wisdom of God is made known. The church is where God conveys grace and love and faith and peace. Now, God can do that in your prayer room. He can do that as you open up your word, like as you do it sort of your own devotional thing. But there is a special, one of the main things Paul says here is that if your Christian life is lived detached from the Christian community, you are missing out on a vast portion of God's grace and love and mercy and kindness. It's connected through the community, through the people of God. Now, it's interesting here as we're in the season of Advent, as, as, as what Paul is saying here is, is, look, the church, I'm praying ultimately that God would be with you, that God would be with us, the people of God. The main theme of Advent is Emmanuel, God with us. So that constant flow, the person of Jesus, the person of God himself would be present among the church and it's God's desire, has always been God's desire, that he would have for himself a people who would experience his goodness and his kindness, his mercy and grace, and who would show the world what he is like so that more people would come to know the loving kindness of our Heavenly Father. See, it's the church. Now, this, this, this community focus that Paul has, it can't just be a generic, sort of um, bland kind of community. It, if it's just community for the sake of community, it will self-destruct. It's a community that has to be founded upon the person and work of Jesus, right? He goes back to the cornerstone, the cornerstone of the temple. The foundation of the temple is Jesus himself. If we make anything other than Jesus the temple, this kind of community will implode. It will not be able to withstand conflict. It will not be able to, to withstand the trials and the temptations that come. It will not be able to, to face the adversity of living a countercultural life as our culture marches on to the beat of an anti-God drum. This community has to be a gospel community, a community that's profoundly committed to Jesus and the word of God, a community that is committed to advancing the gospel, both in the world, but ultimately in the hearts of the people, that more and more we go deeper and deeper into our understanding and knowledge and, and experience of the grace of God, of his love. And the way that this happens is through relationship. We've been um, reading The Pilgrim's Progress with um, our oldest, um, a great, great, great book written by John Bunyan many, many, many hundreds of years ago. Um, and in this story, he talks about this, this young man, Christian, who is journeying to the celestial city. And all, all throughout his way, he's facing adversity and temptation. And you get, he's, he meets a guy named Backslider. He meets these guys that are, are cowards. They're all kind of sabotaging his walk to the celestial city. But he finds this guy named Faithful. 
this brother who encourages him, that helps him press on in this walk. And this is the kind of friend, this is the kind of brotherhood that we have to have at Sacred City Church. That we would be committed to Jesus and to one another, that we would help each other along in knowing the grace, the love, the truth that God has for us. And for Paul... Like, Paul is not an exception to this. In fact, as he's talking about Tychicus, his buddy, in verses 21 and 22, Paul is saying that he has received some of those very blessings from God through his brother Tychicus. He says he's a beloved brother and a faithful minister. Paul has this relationship with Tychicus that isn't just about, you know, accomplishing a mission. He has this real relational integrity. Right, the foundation being Jesus. It's not just like a, 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 a you know, he's, he's, it's not just that Tychicus is an acquaintance that he tolerates, but a beloved brother. He's not just this guy that's up for an adventure, which I think following Paul around in the ministry of Jesus would be an adventure. But he's proven himself to be faithful, a faithful minister. See, I, by God's grace, I can say that here at Sacred City Church, we have a lot of Tychicuses, a lot of beloved brothers and sisters, a lot of faithful ministers. And, and the primary aim, the reason why Paul sends Tychicus is to encourage the church in Ephesus. Not, not just to like lift their spirits, but like this word in, encourage carries a, a a breadth to it. Yeah, there is this encouragement of, of keep on, brother, keep on, keep faithful, keep true. But there's a sense of, of exhortation, of, of calling people up, of, of a community sense of this, this mindset. I want to call you to live into your identity in Christ to a degree which you've never lived in before, and it's going to be far more glorious than you could ever imagine. To exhort the brothers, to instruct one another, which means that sometimes you've got to have hard conversations. But it's always to the aim of giving people a gateway into the full life that Jesus came to give. And Tychicus is implanted in, in, in the Ephesians church, and we don't really know how long he stays there, but his mission here, given the words of the Apostle Paul, is to recreate a gospel community with the aim of making God known among the world and solidifying the gospel identity that God has given his people, that we would bring each other before God that we would remind each other and teach each other and exhort each other and encourage each other. And, and my prayer for Sacred City Church, while we have a lot of things to be pray, uh, praise God for, is to be to a greater degree this kind of gospel community. That we would always keep Jesus and his gospel at the center of our existence. That we would never move on. That we'd never get bored with, with the, the truth of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. That's not just the ABCs of Christianity, it's the A through Zs, that it's everything. That we continue to push each other deeper and deeper into the arms of the Father as we study the Word of God together, as we're grounded in true reality. My prayer is that we prove ourselves like Tychicus to be beloved to one another, that we would experience the belovedness of the Father, and to be found faithful in the task that God's given us. To not veer from our identity in Christ, to not veer from the mission that God lays out, but be a people who continually stand beneath the waterfall of God's grace and are continually bringing other people along with us to bask in his mercies. Every person in our city longs for grace. Every person in our city longs for truth. Every person in our city longs for peace. Every person in our city longs for love. And the only place that you can find this, the only legitimate place you can find this, is in Jesus. It's in, in, the, in the context of his church. And so if you're hungry for this, the arms of Sacred City are open to you. And even more importantly, the arms of Jesus are open to you. 
Come and stand beneath this waterfall of God's grace. And church, when we stand here, when we operate our entire lives just being saturated and drenched in God's grace and love and mercy, we become solidified in our gospel identity. And as you're solidified in your gospel identity, it generates a certain kind of love in you. Paul says it's a love incorruptible. He says, peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. When you stand underneath that waterfall, God generates a love that is incorruptible in you, a resolute love an eternal and timeless love, an unchanging love. A love that comes directly from God. We love because he has first loved us. And as we come to the Lord's table this morning, it testifies to that reality. It's while we were far off, Jesus brought us near through his life, death, and resurrection. While we were yet stuck in sin, he made us alive. This morning, Jesus gives once again his grace and his love, his kindness. This meal instills faith in us to know that that there's a real presence of Jesus among us here this morning. There's a real presence of Jesus that goes with us as we leave here today. And it's a constant invitation to keep coming back and fill our hands with God. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you have given us everything that we need. The deepest longings of our soul have been met above and beyond in Christ Jesus. Through the gospel, you've you've taken us, you've transformed us uh, from a sorry state to a glorious state. Your love has been fixed upon us, a love that has preceded the creation of the cosmos and will go far into the new heavens and new earth. God, this morning as we open up our hands to receive the elements, God, will you help us to see that we're receiving you? That it was Christ's body that was broken. It was his blood that was shed. That in this, he reconciles us to you, Father. He is our peace. In this, he shows us the love, the steadfast love of the Father. That he shows grace, truth. We pray, God, that you would fill us up with your grace and your mercy. That you would give us what we don't deserve and just prove Uh, to us, your graciousness, your kindness, your benevolence. And would this be a meal that instills a faith in us that is resolute, that that is um, driven by a love incorruptible. And would all this be for our benefit, but, but even more so, God, would this be to your glory, the praise of your glorious grace. A testimony of how you so wisely and skillfully have delivered for yourself a people. You've made us into a people. You've given us a new identity. Help us, God, through this meal to live out of it. For our good and your glory, it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.